0: Women have been involved in crime since the beginning of time. However, we're usually portrayed as the victims of violent crimes rather than the doers. But you know that saying, women can do anything men can do, but sometimes better? Well, that also applies to murder. And in this recap, you're going to hear about three shocking cases that made headlines over the years, including America's first female serial killer, who may or may not have faked her own death a woman who made soap and desserts out of her victim's flesh and the real life witch from Hansel and Gretel.
1: Hi, I'm Chris, and if you've got less than an hour, this is the show for you. Amy and I are bringing you twice the crime in half the time every week. Today, we wanna to tell you about three of the most violent criminals in Amish history, starting with Delphine LaLaurie, a sadistic serial killer whose crimes were so horrifying that even her rich neighbors in New Orleans banded together to run her out of town. And if you've ever seen American Horror Story, season three, coven, then you already know a lot about this woman. Kathy Bates' character was based on her sick crimes. The beginning of the end for her started when one of her victims attempted suicide by setting the mansion on fire. The woman was Delphine's 70-year-old cook, who she had chained to the stove and was slowly starving to death. But there were worse horrors in store for her, and the woman decided she'd rather die than be subjected to the torture awaiting her in the attic. Luckily, the fire department rescued her before that happened, but what she showed them in the attic... There are hardly words for. When she led them upstairs, they found a torture chamber. By the time her cook made her last-ditch effort for escape in April 1834, the rumors of Madame Delphine's sadistic tendencies were well known among the wealthy elite of New Orleans. However, in public, she was careful to be seen treating her slaves kindly, since there were laws against the kind of abuse she was fond of. Although, getting anyone in authority to actually take action at that time was next to impossible, as you're about to hear. Delphine was born and bred in New Orleans, the fifth child of a powerful and privileged family. Her uncle was governor of Louisiana and Florida when she was a child, and her cousin was the mayor of New Orleans. She herself was married three times to increasingly younger men. By the time she married her third husband, a doctor just off the boat from France, she had five children, although only two of her daughters and her baby son were still living at home by then. And what a home it was. She designed the LaLaurie Mansion at 1140 Royal Street as a two-story temple to the finer things in life. And even though it's since been redone, the mansion is still standing at the corner of Royal and Governor Nichols streets in the French Quarter. Today, it's a temple to the depravity of the time. No coincidence that it's also considered the most haunted building in New Orleans. The LaLaurie family hadn't been living in the mansion for a whole year before the killing started. The first known victim was a 12-year-old enslaved girl named Leah who Delphine had taken for her personal maid. As the story goes, Leah was brushing her hair when she hit a snarl and accidentally pulled it. In response, Delphine chased her onto the roof of the house with a whip and forced her off the edge. As it happened, her rich neighbor was coming home at just that moment and witnessed the little girl fall to her death in the courtyard. Delfini tried to cover it up by hiding the body in a well, although some reports say the girl was buried in the courtyard. But regardless, she wasn't able to get away with it completely. Although the repercussions were laughable, she was given a $300 fine and forced to sell the nine other enslaved people imprisoned at the mansion. But she managed to get around that slap on the wrist. She just asked her family to buy the workers for her, and she quickly returned them to the hell that was their life at 1140 Royal Street with no one the wiser. Behind closed doors, she and possibly her husband, Ann Butler, continued to torture and experiment on them. When rescue workers tried to help those locked in the attic during the fire, the LaLoris refused to give them the key. In fact, reports from the time hint that they were actually angry at the invasion of their privacy. So they broke the door down. Now, according to articles from 1834 reported on by vice.com, they found quote, seven slaves hanging by their necks and badly mutilated. One man had a hole in his head filled with maggots. All of them had bloody welts and wore iron collars with the spikes facing inward. So they couldn't move their head without fear of stabbing themselves. Over the years, accounts of what was actually found in the attic got worse. Some of the more stomach-turning legends include victims with gouged out eyes, lips sewn shut, intestines draped around their waists like belts, a woman with her skin peeled off in such a way that she looked like a human caterpillar, and another with arms and legs that had been broken and reset in strange positions to make her look like a crab. Whether those are true or exaggerated, who knows, but some reports about the equally twisted nature of her medical doctor husband, Leonard, offer some basis to the rumors. The same reports say as many as 100 men, women, and children may have fallen victim to them. Whatever they found in the attic was so terrible, and in the American deep south in those days, a person could get away with almost anything when it came to their enslaved workers But the atrocities they saw that day actually incited a riot of nearly 4,000 people. The mob looted the Lalori mansion and started pulling it apart by hand, piece by piece as the fire burned. In the chaos, however, Delphine and her husband and children managed to escape to the water where they boarded a boat and set sail for France without facing any justice for what they'd done. Some reports say she died there eight years later in 1842. Others say she faked her death and came back to New Orleans to resume her hideous activities in secret. And still, others insist she never left at all. Meanwhile, the Hell House sat abandoned and almost completely destroyed for the next few years until it was rebuilt in 1838. In later years, a third floor and other additions were added. Over the years, it's been used as a high school, a music school, an apartment building, a halfway house, various restaurants and retail stores, and even a luxury apartment building. And in every one of those evolutions since the 1800s, the building has been considered to be haunted. That doesn't seem to bother any of the high profile owners. In 2007, the actor Nicolas Cage bought it for a cool 3.5 million. However, he only had ownership until 2009 when he was forced to give it up in a foreclosure. Today, the house is being used by screenwriters Chad and Carrie Hayes, the team responsible for the Conjuring movies. They're working on a new screenplay about this case that's set to be directed by Darren Bozeman. If you're a horror movie fan, you might know him as the director of the Saw movies. One of the partners of the production company for the film is the home's current owner some of the movie's scenes may also be filmed inside and outside of the house. Now, if you're thinking back to American Horror Story season three, you should know that the house used in the episode on this case is not the 1140 Royal street place. The owners at that time wouldn't permit filming outside or inside. So the producers had to make do with different locations. Creepy. And our next female serial killer is just as evil. Amy's coming right up to tell you about America's first female serial killer.
0: So what kind of top three list would this be if we didn't include America's first female serial killer, Belle Gunness? Yeah, Eileen Wurnos often gets that label, but it would be more accurate to say that Eileen is the first female killer born and bred in America. But long before she came on the scene, Belle came to Chicago from her native Norway in 1881. She was 22, hoping to strike it rich, but the only work she could get at first was cleaning houses. So she soon found out that fire, insurance fraud, husbands, and poison paid a lot better. More than 40 people lost their lives on Belle Gunness's farm, all to satisfy her hunger for money and murder. And when the jig was up and she was about to be arrested, she suddenly died along with her children in a house fire. Or did she? As the legend goes, Bell murdered an innocent woman and her own children to stage her death and run. But let's go back to the beginning, starting with husband number one. In 1884, Bell married a department store night security guard by the name of Mads Albert Sorensen. Together, they had five children, although at least one girl was adopted. The family opened a candy store, but the most money it ever brought in was when it mysteriously burned down less than a year after opening. But not long after they collected the insurance payout on the store, her husband came home complaining about a headache. Belle said she gave him quinine powder and went to make dinner. And when she came back to check on him an hour or so later, he was dead. The police wondered if the pharmacist might have given her morphine by mistake, but Bell had already thrown away the paper it came in. So was it an accident? Well, she wasn't arrested, but it just so happened that on the day Mads died, on that day only, his old and new life insurance policies overlapped and she collected a $5,000 payout or about $150,000 in today's money. So not long after the death of her husband, two of their kids, Caroline and Axel, died from acute colitis the woman was certainly a magnet for tragedy, yeah? So would you be surprised to learn that acute colitis and strychnine poisoning kind of look a lot alike, and both of those kids had life insurance policies? So with all that insurance money burning a hole in her pocket, Belle moved what was left of her family onto a 48-acre pig farm outside of Laporte, Indiana. By this time, she was already a rich widow, but she wanted more. And as you might expect... Not long after they moved in, a fire burned down part of her farm. And yes, she collected more insurance dollars. In April 1902, she married Peter Gunnis. He was a local butcher and a widower with two daughters. Now, not long after the wedding, Peter's baby daughter suddenly died while he was out of town. Foul play couldn't be proved, but he must have had a father's instinct about his new wife because he sent his other daughter away to live with relatives. What a shame he didn't leave with her because eight months after their wedding, a meat grinder fell on his head and killed him. Or at least that's how Belle told it. But her adopted daughter, a girl named Jenny Olson, was spreading a different story. She told people that Belle killed Peter with a meat cleaver. Now, Jenny disappeared not long after that. Belle explained that away by saying she went to school in California. And as far as Peter's death went, yes, there was an inquest, but there was no evidence to prove that she was lying. And once again, she collected another husband's life insurance. But LaPorte, Indiana is a small town and hunting for the next cash cow wasn't easy. So Belle cast her net far and wide with the help of Norwegian language newspapers. She used the Lonely Hearts columns to post ads looking for single, rich, bachelors interested in spending time with an attractive widow on her farm. And one of her ads went like this. Comely widow who owns large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of gentlemen equally well provided with views of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit triflers need not apply. Okay. So if you were to reply to her ad, say, for example, Belle would make sure to tell you to bring your money and absolutely positively not tell anyone where you were going, which is not suspicious at all, right? These men were lured by the prospect of shacking up with a hot rich widow. So when she suggested they buy shares in her farm to join their fortunes, All they had to do was deposit cash into her bank account. Well, they did it. And once she had their money, they found themselves on the business end of a meat cleaver or drinking coffee laced with strychnine. And no one in their families back home had any idea what happened. So based on evidence later found at the murder farm, it's widely believed most of them were dismembered and fed to her pigs or buried in hog pens or in shallow graves around the farm. How many men fell victim to her between 1902 and 1908 is unclear, but as many as 40 victims, including women and her own children, were later found. One of her neighbors later told the New York Tribune that she received men visitors all the time. A different man came nearly every week to stay at the house. She introduced them as cousins from Kansas, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Chicago. She was always careful to make the children stay away from her cousins. Only one lucky man is believed to have escaped, George Anderson. He traveled from Missouri to meet her. And on his very first night, she made him dinner and confessed that she was having trouble making the mortgage. Mm -hmm. Though he reassured her that he could and would pay it off if they decided to get married. But Belle didn't want his ring. She wanted his money. And late that night, he woke up to her leaning over him, holding a candle, and what he thought at the time was a wet rag. It was actually soaked in chloroform. He said later that her face was so full of hate, he was scared out of his wits. He jumped out of bed, ran out of the house, and never returned. He was so embarrassed about falling for her scheme that he didn't tell anyone what happened to him until after the murder farm made national news. Now, she might have gone on collecting victims if it wasn't for Andrew Hagelin and his brother. Andrew was one of her victims, but unlike the other guys, he didn't follow her instructions to the letter. He told his brother he was going to Laporte to marry a rich widow. And much later, this letter from Bell was found at his house. It's postmarked January 13th, 1908. So if you're wondering just what on earth this woman was saying to get all these men out to her farm, take a listen. To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world, we will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly when I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Forever. Meanwhile, it wasn't all business for Belle. She had a secret lover working for her as a farmhand by the name of Ray Lampier. He really loved her, but she probably thought of him as just, you know, useful in more ways than one. But he was getting sick of seeing all these men showing up at the farm to win her hand. So when Andrew arrived from South Dakota clutching know $2,900, Ray had had enough. He made a scene and she fired him. Now a week after he arrived, poor Andrew, she got rid of him too. And that was in February, 1908. But Ray didn't go quietly. He kept coming back with alternating, you know, threats or promises of love and devotion. And in response, she had him arrested for trespassing and tried to have him committed by claiming he was threatening to burn her farm down. She couldn't seem to rid herself of Andrew either. His brother got suspicious when he never came home, so he wrote to Belle asking her where Andrew was, and her reply was basically a shrug. She suggested he might have gone to Chicago or even back to Norway, and then she went so far as to tell him that if he wanted to come to Laporte to look for his brother, she'd help search, but she wanted to be paid for her time. Well, no matter what she said, his brother would not let it go. And between him and Ray's constant threats, her situation was getting precarious, to say the least. You could say she put her emergency exit plan into action. Now, what exactly that plan was is debatable, but here's what happened, and you can decide for yourself what the truth might be. On April 26, 1908, she paid a visit to her lawyer to ask him to draw up a will. She claimed she was afraid Ray was going to follow through on his threats and kill her, so she left everything to her children. 11-year-old Myrtle, 9-year-old Lucy, and 5-year-old Philip. So then on her way home, she bought two cans of kerosene. And we know she cleaned out her bank accounts. By some estimates, she had today's equivalent of more than $6 million stashed away. The very next day, her farmhouse burned down. There were no survivors, or so police thought. They found four bodies in the cellar, three children, and what they thought was Belle's headless corpse, even though the woman appeared to be a little smaller than Belle, who stood almost six feet tall and weighed around 200 pounds. Meanwhile, police and firefighters were digging through the rubble, searching for the missing head, which they never found. But they did find Belle's false teeth, which was enough for the coroner to say, yeah, all right, these are the teeth, so that body, even though it doesn't look like the six-foot woman. That we know, that's probably that's got to be her. Mm-hmm. Well, when news of the fire reached Andrew's brother, he showed up to search for him. And meanwhile, police had noticed some uneven ground in and around the hog pens. And what they found when they started digging there was so gruesome. We're still talking about it a hundred years later. Andrew was there. He had been dismembered, and he wasn't alone. All in all, the body parts of more than forty people were hauled out of those shallow pits. One of them was Bell's adopted daughter, the one who had supposedly left for school in Los Angeles two years earlier, Jenny Olson. The case was so shocking that the Gunness Farm soon became a gruesome tourist attraction. According to Harold Schechter's book on this case called Hell's Princess, quote, The Lake Erie and Western Railroad arranged for special excursion trains to bring visitors from Indianapolis and Chicago Every hotel room in La Porte and nearby Michigan City had been booked and extra cots set up in the hallways. According to one estimate, at least 10,000 people were expected to flock to the murder farm on a Sunday to satisfy their morbid curiosity. And sure enough, by Sunday, May 10th, 1908, as many as 20,000 people had made their way to the infamous murder farm to watch police haul the body parts away. Some of the onlookers even grabbed some body parts and took them with them. The place was a circus, a carnival. People were selling pictures, food, souvenirs. There are postcards of this event. And what about that handyman, Ray? Well, didn't Bell warn everyone he would do something exactly like that? Well, her timing seems a little convenient, don't you think? Especially for a woman with a long history of convenient but lucrative tragedies in her past. Ray was arrested and he was charged with murder and arson, but he was only convicted for the arson because they didn't have any evidence to charge him for murder. And he did admit that he saw the smoke coming from the house, but ran away before he could say anything or help anyone. He was in prison less than a year when he died of tuberculosis, but before he left this world, he had one more story to tell. On his deathbed, he swore Belle was alive. He claimed he'd been her accomplice all along, disposing of the bodies, helping her fake her own death. He said the two of them had been to Chicago just days before the fire under the pretense of hiring a woman to be a housekeeper. The real plan was to make this woman, total innocent woman, Belle's body double in death. Now, Belle was supposed to set the fire and meet him later to get out of town together, but she never showed. So whether his account is true or not, no one knows. But sightings of Bell came from all over the U.S. in the following years. And then in 1931, a woman named Esther Carlson died in prison in California while awaiting trial for allegedly poisoning a Norwegian man for his money. Now, the similarities to Bell's M.O. go even deeper than that. For one thing, this man was originally from Chicago. Esther was working for him as a live-in housekeeper when she managed to convince him to add her name to his bank account. And a week after he did that, he was dead from arsenic poisoning. Furthermore, there's no record of Esther Carlson even existing before 1908. And two people from LaPorte claimed to recognize her as the mistress of Murder Farms. And get this... When Esther died, in her possession were three photographs of the same looking children that Belle is photographed with. Hmm. So were they the same woman, Esther and Belle? Well, that's exactly what a team of grad students at the University of Indianapolis wanted to know. So, with the permission of Belle's great-grandniece, they exhumed her coffin with the idea that they would test the skeleton inside against DNA recovered from a sealed envelope found unburned on her property. But when they opened the coffin, they got more than they bargained for. The remains of two children had also been buried with her. But the three children that died in the fire, the bodies originally believed to have been her three kids, were buried separately. So... Who was, who are these kids in the coffin? Who was the grown woman in the coffin? That's still a mystery. They couldn't get enough viable DNA off the envelope to use it. And when they tried using samples from Belle's living relatives, those were inconclusive. Now it's been a few years since they tested the DNA. The last update seems to be from 2018. So now we're going to need some documentary film crew to come up with some funds to retest and solve this mystery for us, right? But don't go away, because Chris is on deck to tell you about one of the most notorious serial killers in Denmark history.
1: If the witch in Hansel and Gretel was inspired by a real woman, that person would be Dagmar Overby. She pretended to look after the kids in her care, but secretly she was killing them. She lived in Denmark and worked in a daycare in the mid-1900s. At the age of 25, she gave birth to a daughter, and a couple of years later, the two of them moved to Copenhagen. Under cover of the hustle and bustle of the capital city, she opened a shady back alley adoption agency and encouraged single mothers to hand over their babies to her and a hefty cash payment with the promise that she would find them a good home. But they weren't going to loving families. Over the course of seven years, she strangled, drowned, and burned at least 25 babies. One of them was her own daughter. She covered up her crimes by disposing of the ashes in her own stove or burying the bodies, and no one ever asked any questions. For a woman who seemed driven by the devil himself to murder children for no other reason than she enjoyed it, she had the perfect setup. Or so she thought. One day she came across an ad in the paper by a woman who was looking for a nice family to adopt her infant daughter who she couldn't afford to take care of. Dagmar offered to handle an adoption for her, and the woman gave her the cash and the little girl. But the next day, she did something no other mother had done. She changed her mind and came back to get her daughter. But the girl wasn't there. And Dagmar couldn't seem to answer any questions about where she was. She claimed she couldn't even remember the address of the family she placed her with. It was such an obvious lie. The woman called the police. When they searched her apartment. They found the woman's daughter. Unfortunately, it was too late. The girl's body was already destroyed in Dagmar's stove. The bones of other children were scattered throughout the house. When she was arrested, she confessed to killing 16 children, but despite that, she was only convicted for nine deaths, although she was suspected in the murder of a dozen more. As gruesome as her crimes were, one good thing came out of it people in Denmark realized they needed to do something to protect these children, which is why, in 1923, the Danish government passed a law requiring that vulnerable children be placed in newly established government-sponsored care homes. And as for Dagmar, she died in prison on May 6, 1929, at age 42. Good riddance. And don't go anywhere because we want to tell you one more quick story about a woman known as the soap maker of Correggio. Take one guess what her secret ingredient was. Think of her as horrifying killer number 3B.
0: Leonardo Conciulli was a loving Italian mother who also happened to be a serial killer who turned her victims into soaps and desserts that she passed out to guests and neighbors. And as bizarre as it sounds... The cannibalism started as a twisted way for her to protect her oldest son in the army. Now, here's a little background. The woman was pregnant 17 times. Three of the children miscarried in the womb and 10 of them died after birth. So it's safe to say that her four surviving kids meant the world to her. And clearly her experiences with childbirth left her mentally unstable, superstitious, and depressed. So when her son told her he was joining the army in 1939 to fight in World War II, she got it into her head that the best way to keep him safe would be through human sacrifice. She grew up Catholic and, you know, cannibalism is a means of protection, isn't something that they teach you at mass, but she decided it was the only way. So she took her first victim in 1939. Faustina Setti was a 73-year-old lonely woman desperate to get married, something Leonardo used to her advantage, hinting that she had just the man for her, even writing letters to her from this imaginary suitor, setting up a time for the two of them to, you know, run off together. But first, they had to meet at Leonardo's house, of course. So when the day came, Faustina arrived excited beyond words to meet her man, but her host had other plans. She spiked the woman's wine, and when she passed out, she killed her with an axe and chopped her body into nine parts. She collected the blood in a bowl, and later she told police what she did next. And I warn you, it's pretty stomach-turning, so if you're not up for this, you put your hands over your ears. Quote, I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, mixed it with chocolate, flour, sugar milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, and kneading it all together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, and I also ate them. She also collected a little money from the victim in exchange for her matchmaking work. Her second victim came along a little less than a year later, in September 1940, and she followed the same plan as she did the first one, with a couple of minor adjustments. Francesca Soavi was a woman in need of a job, so Leonardo got her one, or so she thought. She was told there was a teaching job waiting for her in Europe, and just like Leonardo told her to, she wrote her friends and family saying she was leaving for work. But she never left Italy. Instead, she was baked into desserts and fed to Leonardo's guest. Her evil plan seemed to be working just fine, so she took another victim right away, and as it turned out, she would be her last. The woman was a high-profile opera singer named Virginia Cacepo. Leonardo lured her in with the promise of a gig in Florence. And when she came by her house to toast her future success, Virginia fell victim to the same deadly techniques her killer had used twice before. But this time, she didn't just turn her into tea cakes. She turned the woman's flesh into soap. There's another horrifying quote coming up for you. So if you want to cover your ears again, this would be the time. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet." But Leonarda didn't count on one of her victim's family members questioning the story she'd invented for them. It was Virginia's sister-in-law that ultimately stopped her. She was suspicious of the letters and she happened to notice Virginia going into this woman's house on the night she was supposed to be leaving town. So it was there that she directed police when she couldn't reach her sister-in-law. Now, at first she denied everything, but when police started shifting the blame to her kids, you know, asking where, where were they when this happened? Did they need these people? That's when she confessed. She was sentenced to life behind bars and she died at the age of 79 in 1970. And as it turned out, her fate echoed what a fortune teller had told her years earlier. She would spend 30 years in prison and three years in a hospital for the criminally insane. Oh, and her son did survive the war. Probably not a result of the human sacrifice. Definitely not. And good luck eating chocolate cake ever again. That is your recap. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please take a second to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating and let us know what you think in the comments. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us and it really helps us spread the word about this show. Until next Wednesday, take care.